You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. First Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-7, through 7, Paul says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Bow your heads with me. Pray a blessing over God's word. Father, Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You for the blessing that it is to gather this morning together as a church family. Sing songs of worship and praise to You. And now to turn to Your Word and to have our hearts ignited in further worship and praise of You. And Father, I just confess that I think I've heard this thing theme all morning too as I've just interacted with people that have gathered here today that the circumstances of our lives over the over the last week act like a big giant stirring spoon like those circumstances of our lives have just stirred up things in our hearts desires affections emotions feelings so father I just ask that you would come by the power of your spirit now and that you would purify our hearts that you would purify make right the affections the desires feelings emotions of our hearts father prepare our hearts to hear from your word prepare our hearts to be changed and transformed through the preaching of your word we just beg you now to come and do work in our midst pray father that you would take the meditations of my heart the words of my mouth as I preach your word, cause them to do good in your people and cause them to bring glory to your name. Father, we pray all this in the name of Jesus. We ask, Father, in our time together that you would bring the love of Jesus to bear upon our hearts. We just pray that you would make Jesus and the picture of him broken and bloodied, bruised at the cross, and alive again doorway of that empty tomb. Pray, Father, that you would do that work. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Amen, amen. <laughs> so uh, on the front edge of uh, this passage, um, before we really dive in here, um, I, I want to be uh, just sensitive to the fact that uh, if you've heard this passage this morning, there might be some of you who are like, okay, this is a passage that's dealing with leaders, overseers, elders, pastors, and you might be thinking, I'm not an elder, not a pastor, don't feel called to that. Um, so just want to lay that out there first, that uh, there may be some pieces of this where you might feel like 
And I don't know how much this really applies to me, um, but I do want to say, uh, and I think we'll say this again towards the end, that there is actually tons of great application for here for you in this passage. And, and the biggest overriding piece of that is this. All of the things that I'm about to preach and describe in terms of what it means to be an elder, pastor, shepherd, overseer in the church, actually all of these things I'm going to preach actually applies to everyone in the church. There, there's nothing in here that doesn't apply to you as well. Uh, it's just the end of the day that an elder, pastor, shepherd, overseer um, is called to be the best example of that in the church. Okay, so, um, so I hope that you would be listening with an ear on the one side of your head because you have two ears. So with one ear on one side of your head, be listening for, okay, this is what it looks like to be in that uh, area of leadership and what I should be able to expect from my pastors, elders. And then on the other side, I want you to be listening for, but there are pieces here that are going to apply to me too. Okay, so I want you to be kind of listening um, both ways, and if you feel uh, a little bit ADD because of that, yeah, I'm sorry. That's just the way it goes, right? Um, so, give you that. Pray that God would do His work um, in uh, this passage. I want to start off this way. I want you to think about uh, leadership. Uh, one of the things I've always said in regards to leadership is the reason that we have unqualified leaders in the world today, whether that be business or anywhere else for that matter, um, but especially if you think of business, the reason that we have so many unqualified leaders in business is because there are so many uneducated customers out there. Make sense? Too many people don't know what to look for in a qualified business leader. And on this, at the same time, there's far too many of us who are willing to skimp on the price of a product on the front edge, which then typically means that we're going to pay a higher price on the back end, right? So think about this in terms of hiring an employee. If you hire an unqualified employee for a job, what's the result going to be? It's going to be devastating loss to your business and to your customer on the back end when you skimp on the cost. And the same is true in the church. Think about the church this way. When, uh, when unqualified leaders are given the responsibility for the church, then the church pays a heavy price. Let's think about the church for a minute. Scriptures teach us that the church is the bride of Christ, right? She is a priceless wife, you might say. Jesus held absolutely nothing back when he gave his life for her on the cross of Calvary. Another picture of the church in Scriptures is that the church is a flock of sheep. And Jesus is the master shepherd. <clears throat> Jesus is not a hireling who only works for a paycheck. Jesus is the chief shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. So this gives us some context for what we're thinking about. And really, the church ought not to hold a cavalier attitude towards the qualifications and the expectations and the selection of her leaders. All too often, though, the church has been guilty of holding a cavalier, unbiblical attitude in this regard. Uh, the church also certainly should not skimp on the front edge of the cost of leadership development. Leadership development is costly, and it's hard work. Just a passing glance at our own history as a young church plant as well as the history of the church over 
uh, the years uh, would reveal definite shortcomings, sometimes severe shortcomings in the selection and the ongoing development of her leaders. For all of that, many of us have much to own in that regard. As far as our church family is concerned, I would want to own my own failure over the years, shortcomings in seeking to put qualified men and women into places of leadership over God's sheep. I've made plenty of mistakes in this area. Um, and I want to gloss it over, but I want to spend a whole bunch of time here either. I'd be happy to have a conversation with you and tell you more. Um, but the biblical process of leadership development, which, which really I like to refer to uh, leadership development as really discipleship on crack or on speed, okay? Leadership development really is discipleship. Um, when you disciple people, you produce leaders. Jesus called men to follow him and women, and what got produced was leaders. So leadership development is discipleship. And for me, uh, I think when we first started six and a half years ago, the whole process, the whole concept, the whole philosophy, the whole theology of developing leaders, discipling, was much foggier to me then uh, than it is now. Not that I have it down pat now, um, but I think it's a little bit more clear in my mind I think that I am far more convinced of a couple of things. Uh, first of all, uh, the church of Jesus is priceless in nature, number one. And number two, um, there is a cost to leadership development that most of us don't want to pay, myself included. I learned a lot about these two things. So it makes sense to me, um, as I contemplate these things, um, that, that God would actually have a certain set of criteria for evaluating whether or not a person can be a pastor in the church family, a shepherd of his bride, shepherd of his sheep. Thankfully, thankfully, God did not leave us with a blank piece of paper to write the job description or the qualifications on because heaven only knows what we would do with it. For those who ignore this passage, um, you see the devastating effects. Thankfully, God spoke through the Apostle Paul to Timothy here in this passage. Timothy was a pastor, an elder, a shepherd, an overseer of the church in Ephesus. Now, I, I, I use the words pastor, elder, uh, shepherd, and overseer. Those four words I use interchangeably to describe the role of pastor, elder, shepherd, overseer, okay? Um, why do I do this? Might be the question. I've had many people ask that question. Why would you do that? I do this simply because the Bible does this. That's why I do this. I, the Bible should direct how we see these things. And so I do this because the Bible does this. Um, the Bible uses those words interchangeably. There, there are basically three different Greek words. You'll see these on the screen, I think, in front of you. At least I think I put them in a slide. There you go. There's, a, there's three different words in the Bible that the Bible uses. Uh, the first one is episkopos, which means overseer. Second one is presbyteros, which means elder. And the third one is poimion, which means pastor shepherd. Now, you don't find me doing a lot of work in Greek very often. Joe Nelson does this a lot better than I do because I think he can speak it as a second language or something. I can't. Um, but this is important for us to recognize the words that they use. Um, 
passages like the one that we're currently studying, as well as a whole list of others that I could give you, Acts 20, Ephesians 4, 1 Timothy 4, 5, Titus 1, 1 Peter 5, all these passages and many more throughout the scriptures use those three Greek words, episcopus, presbyteros, and poimian. They use those three Greek words to describe, listen to this definition, elders who pastor and shepherd the flock of God through spiritual oversight. I want to give you that definition again. I would hope that you would write it down. Elders pastor and shepherd the flock of God through spiritual oversight. My definition, there's been entire volumes written on the definition of what all these words mean together. Um, and if this is tripping you up in some way, if you're like, man, it's like confusing the ever-living heck out of me, um, think about this for a minute. Um, think about the words that we use to describe a dad, right? Okay? Words we use to describe a dad. We use dad, we use daddy, we use father, we use papa. We use multiple interchangeable words to describe the, the same role for a dad from different angles. All those are. We use those words. And despite the use of those words, the role at the end of the day is still the same. And the qualifications to be a dad or a daddy or a father or a papa, they're still the same. They don't change with the term. Function is the same. And I would say that the need for qualified men in the church today and in, 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 in the world uh, at large, the need for, for qualified men to be dads, daddies, fathers, papas, it's probably more severe now than it ever has been before. I mean, we're, we're a long ways away from the fall of Adam and Eve in, in the Garden of Eden. So all the sin has taken its toll on men and women from the beginning, so it leads me to believe that we have a huge need today for men to be dads, right? And I think as I as I've studied this over the years and as I've walked in this role and this calling, I think there's a tight correlation, real tight relationship, a fitting together, you might say, between the role of a daddy on one hand and the role of an elder on another hand. In a caveat, I would just say that we, we live in a day and age where fatherlessness is, is huge. And it's taken a toll on the communities we live in, the world we live in today in ways that I don't, I don't think we can really fully grasp. Fatherlessness has really taken its toll on the church. And I, I think there is a tight correlation and interlinking between the role of daddies, fathers, and the role of elders. <clears throat> now the church in uh, Ephesus, church in Ephesus needed qualified daddies and elders too. Church needed elders who would pastor and shepherd the flock of God through spiritual oversight, right? If you think back to the church at Ephesus, and what we've learned so far, if you've been tracking, there, there'd already been a ton of upheaval in the church, right? Who did the upheaval come from? Elders. Pastors. Right? Men who were in leadership. That was the upheaval that Paul was writing to Timothy about, right? He said, go confront those guys. If you remember. <coughs> I think that uh, where, where the men of the church are not growing into these roles as daddy and as elders... Um, I think families suffer, churches suffer, communities suffer. 
Church needs daddies. Families need daddies. Churches need elders, pastors who will shepherd the flock faithfully. There had already been a ton of upheaval in the church at Ephesus. Some of those guys had gone off the rails, completely disqualified themselves from being spiritual overseers, if not maybe even completely disqualified themselves from the faith altogether, given that they were teaching things that were contrary to the gospel, seeking to draw away members after them. So Paul has instructed Timothy and the rest of the church to stay the course with a clean conscience, instructed them to hold on to their faith, And what he follows that up with is these instructions here. Gives them some guidelines for knowing who is and who isn't qualified for the job of being an elder who pastors and shepherds the flock of God through spiritual oversight. (coughs) So we got to ask the question, what are the qualifications, right? What does the job description look like? How do we know if someone passes the sniff test? Everybody take a big sniff, right? How do we know if someone passes the sniff test for being an overseer of the spiritual life of the church family? Just let anybody in? This is what the church has done in many regards, I think, in many places. Paul answers the question, um, and I'm going to give you a summary, and then we're going to walk through piece by piece. Uh, In summary, Paul basically says five things. Uh, He says, one, that the calling of an elder is an honorable calling. Two, that that an elder must possess godly character. Uh, Three, that an elder must have a well-managed home. Four, that he must be mature in his faith. And five, that he must uh, must have a respectable reputation. Okay? So there's there's five things. Take them one at a time. Number one, uh, eldership is an honorable calling. According to verse one, Paul says, (coughs) the saying is trustworthy. Right? If anyone aspires to, to the office of overseer, he desires what? A noble task. He desires a noble task. So, so as we look at this, the first thing that we see is that an elder is a man to start with. The reason that an elder is a man, according to this passage, is because of the word he, speaking of a man. Um, it's not a neutral word. It's not a gender neutral word. It's a gender specific word. Uh, furthermore, later on, we come across the phrase husband of one wife. It doesn't say spouse of one spouse. Okay? It's, it literally says in the Greek, husband of one wife. Um, so that's one of the first things we see is that uh, an elder must be a man. Um, he must be a man who is pursuing an honorable calling. Um, the, the, the role of an elder is not child's play. It's not a game. Not a game for little boys who want power and success and esteem. This calling is an honorable calling. Why? Why is it an honorable calling? Because it's a calling to come and to die alongside our Savior for the sake of His bride. You think about the weight of that picture. This is Jesus' bride that He gave His life for. And an elder is called to be an under-shepherd of Jesus to care for his wife. See, if any man came to me and offered to take care of my wife while I was away on a trip, I would need to be 100%, 1 million percent sure that that man had an intense desire to die for my wife instead of the intense desire 
to use my wife for his own advancement or his own pleasure like so many other men in the world and in the church have done. Eldership is an honorable calling for a man to pursue. Number two, second qualification. An elder must be a man of godly character. We're going to spend a good chunk of time here, which is appropriate. But I think you'll see. Verses 2 through 3 is where we're going to find this principle. An elder must be a man of godly character. Now, before we look at the passage, I want to give some kind of introductory comments on that. I want you to remember that character is the essence of who a man is. Okay? Character is the essence of who a man is. Now, sadly, in the church today, we oftentimes have men in leadership whose gifting and influence takes them to places where their character cannot sustain them. Listen to that. We oftentimes have men in the church today whose gifting and, and influence and charisma and ability takes them to places where their character cannot sustain them. When you see a man fall and fail and disqualify himself from leadership, it's because his character was a mess underneath all of that. A central thread of a man's character, if you follow this out a little bit more, a central thread of a man's character is, is his integrity. When a person's integrity is fractured, their character is weak. And so this is why Paul says that the calling of an elder is an honorable calling, right? Therefore, an overseer, pastor, elder, shepherd, overseer must be above reproach. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean to be above reproach? Now, according to the dictionary, I looked it up online real quick because I don't have a dictionary in my office, but online dictionary says that this phrase above reproach means to be perfect. Beyond criticism, blameless, uh, above suspicion, without fault, faultless, flawless. Now, it's easy to pass over this phrase above reproach and like kind of dumb it down a little bit, right? Because perfection? That sounds like a really heavy way to start things off in regards to a man's character, right? Really supposed to be perfect? And on what grounds of perfection is an elder going to be evaluated by? What, what list of character traits does God expect an elder to aspire to? Another way of asking the question, what, what list of character traits does an elder have to chase perfection in? What, what should we observe in an elder's life in terms of chasing down perfection to be above reproach? I think that Paul knows and we know that no man is perfect other than Jesus. Okay? Start there in the gospel. No man is perfect other than Christ. So what Paul does is he, he describes categories, areas, six of them to be sure, at least. You could make more if you did it one by one. We're going to group some together today. Um, he describes what it means to be an elder who is above reproach. He says this, says, an overseer must be, Number one, the husband of one wife, right? Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Okay? So in other words, sum that up, an elder is a man who possesses godly character. An elder is a man who is in hot pursuit of Christ-like character. But what does that look like? What does that mean? 
So I'm going to group these into six basic groupings and work through them with you. Number one, an elder must be the husband of one wife. You might say this this way, he, he needs to be a one-woman man. Um, I think another way to say it, the way that I've kind of summarized is he must be a faithful man. Okay? <laughs> this doesn't mean that an elder must be married. Um, otherwise, all the single men in the world are disqualified. And Paul, the author of this, is disqualified because he's single. Uh, Jesus would be disqualified from being our elder too because he was single. Um, so this does not mean that he must be married and cannot be single. Also doesn't mean that he cannot be remarried. Um, the gist of this character trait is that an elder must be a man who pursues purity at all costs. Should not be afraid to spend whatever currency he has on being faithfully pure in his marital life or his singleness. He must have eyes only for his wife. If he has no wife, he better keep his eyes off women, period. He most certainly must not be pursuing another man's wife. Every man who has disqualified himself from eldership in our church up to this point has been a man who has pursued another man's wife. And that lands on me and them. So I'm passionate about that one. He must never put himself in situations where he would even give the slightest hint of treating a single woman any woman as his wife other than his wife, period. A few years ago, there was a point where I remember standing with a group of men where I just said, I'm drawing a line. We have got to raise the quality of the character of the men in our church by God's grace. We've got to start drawing lines in much better places. By God's grace, God has done that work in us. I've been very thankful for him doing that. So an elder must be a faithful one-woman man. Number two, elder must be a sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable man, right? He must be, in other words, a disciplined man. His mind must be disciplined. His actions must be disciplined. His interactions with people must be disciplined. He must be a level-headed thinker. Uh, he must exhibit personal restraint, personal self-control over his desires, his wants, his cravings. He must be disciplined. His life must not be marked by chaos and out-of-control desires. So an elder must be a disciplined man. Number three, uh, an elder must be a man who is hospitable and able to teach. He must be, a, in other words, a ministry-minded man. Okay? Must be a ministry-minded man. Now, when you look at these two characteristics that you see that I've kind of clumped into one, you have hospitality on the one hand, and then you have the ability to teach on the other hand. In the original Greek, those two are paired together as one in some regard, okay? Um, and then they describe what a ministry-minded elder looks like. If you're trying to decide, hey, is this, is this guy really going to do ministry at the elder level? <coughs> what you're looking for is a man who practices hospitality along with the ability to teach. 
Um, and now if you pair these two together, hospitality, ability to teach together as tools, and you do that against the backdrop of Psalm 23, where you see that the Lord is my shepherd, right? We're to model our great shepherd in heaven. Uh, then we get this picture of a man who seeks to do four things, know, lead, feed, and protect the flock. I've hammered those four words home for years. There's tons of books written about them. The reason I hammer them home, why? It's because I didn't know what the job description looked like for an elder. And once I learned it, I wanted to memorize it. Um, this is also, in some regard, the job description of any man in his home as a shepherd. To know his family, to lead his family, to feed his family, to protect his family. And uh, when we look at these things together here, as we look at the ministry-minded man, hospitable and able to teach, we see hospitality and we see the ability to teach as two tools, okay? That they're tools that help an elder to do those things. The way that an elder gets to know the flock and, and, and is able to lead the flock and is able to feed the flock and is able to protect the flock is by practicing hospitality and his ability to teach. So an elder must be hospitable in that he welcomes everyone, but particularly especially strangers. Welcoming towards strangers is really the root of hospitality. Fellowship is the ability to handle people you like. Hospitality is the ability to welcome people you don't know. So, an elder must be able to welcome strangers, and he must not be afraid to have them in his home or be in their homes. But here's the thing. Hospitality is not just merely hanging out with people. Not just merely that. Hospitality, again, is paired with the ability to teach, which informs us that an elder, pastor, shepherd, overseer, he practices this gift of hospitality, welcoming people he doesn't know very well into his home and into their home and being together. He practices hospitality not just to make more friends, but to actually make disciples through his teaching. So I, for some of you that have been around for a long time, um, there's been times like where I've just invited you to my home because I just I need some friends, right? Like I just admit that. Like I'm just freaking lonely. Would you please come hang out with me? <laughs> but I would hope that as you, you know, those of you who know me for a long time, I hope that you would see too that God has slowly transformed that and just purified that too into. And when you're in my home, when I'm in yours. What's happening is teaching that's flowing out of me as a pastor. If you didn't see any of that, you'd have to seriously question whether I was a ministry-minded man. So, an elder must be a ministry-minded man. Four, four, number four, an elder must not be a drunken man, okay? He must be a sober man. Can everybody take a breath while I take a drink? I thought that would be really well-placed since we're talking about being sober. <laughs> And I'm drinking water, just for the record. Easy. <clears throat> now, I, I've met some guys. I know there are some of you in the room. So please hear what I'm about to say. Um, um, just hear what I'm about to say. Please hear the heart. Um, met some guys. I don't think any of you are in this room. So I'm going to say that now. But I have met some guys who think that they have this one nailed. This character trait, they got it down. Pat, good. Because I don't drink anything. I don't drink alcohol. Right? Um. That's actually a really dangerous way of thinking about this character trait. 
because uh, the ex you know, obviously the explicit application of this qualification is most most definitely alcohol. Okay, most definitely explicitly alcohol. Um, but uh, uh, it, there's an implication here. Okay, so the implication that seems actually this is really explicit too is that a man must not be a drunkard. I think that's exactly what it says, right? Must not be a drunkard. So think about that word drunkard, drunkenness. What what is it? Drunkenness is the excessive use of anything intoxicating. Agree with that definition, I hope. Um, what is intoxication then? Um, intoxication is when the pleasure centers of your brain are aroused to a mind-numbing level, scale, okay? That'd be my definite working definition of um, intoxication. So drunkenness is being intoxicated, intoxicated. So typically intoxication then, um, drunkenness refers to mind-altering substances like drugs, like alcohol, or, or things that are definitely overtly sinful, um, like pornography. Um, but here's the thing, we're human, okay? We are human. Um, I grew up in an, in an alcoholic home, and I know the, the phrase and what it's like to be around a dry drunk, but the characteristics are still there, right? <coughs> well, we are human, and because we're human, we create junk drawers of new sin, which Paul talks about in Galatians, um, Create drunk drawers of new sin. Um, intoxication can happen with things like TVs, right? Cell phones, purchases. Ever get really excited about a purchase and kind of feel that momentary high that happens when you buy it? That's a level of intoxication. Um, job status, pursuing that, getting that. Um, friendship, friendship can be the same way too. Romance, there's a whole host of things that we can get drunk on. So I don't want you to rule this out just because you don't drink, smoke, or chew, or date girls to do, like a good Baptist is supposed to not do. Uh, yeah. An elder must be a sober man, plain and simple. Uh, number five, an elder must be gentle instead of violent and quarrelsome. Okay? Uh, the way that I would sum this up is he must be a tempered man. A tempered man. Uh, doesn't mean he can't be a passionate man. Um, but he must not be a man who flies off the handle in fits of rage. I would hope that we know the difference between passionate men who are ready to charge a hill and men who are angry men who fly off the handle in fits of rage. Now, here's the interesting thing. Even if you're, even if you're kind of an external guy, anger for you is going to look a lot different than the guy who's more passive. And just because you're quiet, you don't show your anger in an overtly like overbearing way doesn't mean that you don't like to, in a passive-aggressive way, undermine people. That's still anger being used in a wrong way, okay? Um, so violence can be done not just in the overtly um, external way. It can be done in a very passive, subversive way. And those ones are harder to see, both disqualifying, if you continue in that, right? Um, so must not be a man who flies off the handle and fits of rage, must not use his words to inflict unnecessary hurt, must be quick to pursue, quick to pursue, hear that, quick to pursue relational reconciliation when his words do wound someone unnecessarily. Um, I've struggled with that over the years. Had, had dudes that got to come to me and be like, Joe, you know, the way that you said that wasn't necessarily what you said, but it was the way you said it. I've heard that phrase so many times, like, yep. That's me. It's the way I said it. You're right. I need to go back. And sometimes I argue that a little bit at first because I do like to argue. 
Oh, this is me, okay? I, I pay attention to this one. It must be quick to pursue relational reconciliation when his words do wound someone unnecessarily. Must not be argumentative. Must not be ruled by a need to win the fight. God, damn it. I love to win. So, an elder must be a tempered man. Okay. <clears throat> and then number six, an elder must not be a lover of money. Summarized this way, must be a generous man. So this doesn't mean that an elder doesn't provide for his family well. Also doesn't mean that an elder's family should be the poorest family in the church. Does mean that an elder must be a giver. Elders should, should not be expected to be the largest givers in the church necessarily in terms of dollar amounts. <clears throat> but I do think that elders should be some of the largest givers in terms of the percentage of their income that they give away. We as elders, pastors, overseers, shepherds, we must lead by example in this area. We cannot ask people to give if we're not giving as well. So, so an elder must be a generous man. Uh, summarize, um, summarize point two here. Um, an elder must be a man of godly character. Agreed? Um, he must be a faithful man, one. A disciplined man, number two. A ministry-minded man, number three. A, a, a sober man, number four. A, t- a tempered man, number five. And number six, a generous man. He must be a man who is in hot pursuit of Christ-like character. Must not be a man who is in hot pursuit of anything else. Get this picture in my head now of a dog in heat. Chasing another female dog around. Okay? Kind of a crude illustration. Um, what you should see in an elder's life is his definite pursuit of Jesus. Hot pursuit of Jesus. It should be obvious. No missing on this one. And yet I say that knowing I've missed on this one in terms of my assessment of men over the years. He must be a man who possesses and wants to. Wants to. How will you know if a man wants to possess more Christ-like character? I'll tell you. He spends time in the presence of Jesus. And he's becoming more like Jesus. It's, it's that easy. I don't know why it's been so hard for me to recognize that in a person's life. But it has been. And so he must be a man who wants nothing more than to, than to die alongside Jesus for his bride. So an elder is not a man. Here's a negative way of saying it. An elder, um, a man is not an elder, not qualified, not fit to be an elder if he hangs his head because character growth is hard. Okay? That's, that's like the guy that you're like, are we going to go charge this hill and take out the enemy? Oh, man, it's, it's going to be hard. That, you're not charging the hill with me then, okay? Uh, you can stay in the back, right? I, I, again, I, I don't want to be demeaning or in any way undermining, but we, we, we got to speak straight about this in the church, don't we? Okay. An elder is not a man who hangs his head because character growth is hard. It's not a man who runs at the first sight of confronting his shortcomings. Not a man who hides out in his garage, eating beef jerky, drinking beer, while his friends are knocking on the door to confront his need to grow in godly character. That man's not an elder. An elder is a man who is violently charging the gates of his own sinful heart under the power and the enablement of the Holy Spirit as he joyfully pursues, joyfully 
pursues holiness in his character. So an elder must be a man of godly character. And number three, an elder um, must have a well-managed home, according to verses four and five, okay? <clears throat> so just to recap a little, Paul says the calling of an elder, number one, it's what? An honorable calling, okay? Um, and, and number two, then, an, an elder must be a man of godly character, right? And now number three, Paul says he must manage his own household well, uh, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will, how will he care for God's church? So, summary, an elder is a man who has a well-managed home. His affairs are in order. Chaos does not mark his life. Dignity, orderly conduct marks his home and his family. He labors hard to discipline his children lovingly, and they respond to him with love. Now, I say all that to then also say this doesn't mean that the family dinner table in a pastor's home does not get a little bit crazy. If you never spent some time in my house, you should come spend some time there because, number one, we got seven kids. Number two, we are Italian, and we are loud and proud about it. And uh, it's fun, okay? And it's a raucous riot, and we argue and fight, and it's, and it's good. Like, it's fun. That's all I can say. It's healthy, I think. Um, pretty sure. So it doesn't mean that a family dinner table does not get a little wild, but here's what this... Um, character trait does mean it does mean the dad is present at the dinner table more than he's away okay it does mean that uh, this also doesn't mean i want to get this out there quick too this also doesn't mean that a pastor's kids don't rebel okay as if for some reason we were to think that a pastor's kids must be perfect we have forgotten that they are little sinners too <laughs> just like the rest of us and we should never hold an elder or pastor's kids to a higher standard than we would hold any other kid. Kids rebel. Okay? Uh, what this um, qualification looks towards is, is, is it means that what we need to see in an elder's life, what you guys should see in my life as a pastor in this church and any other elders or pastors that we install in the years to come, is you want to see a man who lovingly and firmly and patiently pursues his kids emotionally, relationally, and spiritually. Okay? I said a lot there, and we could spend a lot of time here. We should lovingly, firmly, patiently pursue them emotionally, relationally, and spiritually. Why? To call them back from their rebellion to the foot of the cross in the gospel. That's what the picture of an elder should look like. It's what you should see in my life and any other elder that we install here. And the direct correlation in this, the direct consequence of this, is if you put men into leadership who do not do these things, then he will not shepherd his family well either. He will not bring a loving and disciplined presence to the church. So, an elder must have a well-managed home. Okay. <laughs> Number four, an elder must be a man who is mature in his faith. Number six. Or verse 6, number 4, verse 6, sorry. Uh, Paul says, again, to recap, calling of an elder is, number 1, an honorable calling, right? Uh, therefore, number 2, he must be a man of godly character. It means number 3, he must have a well-managed home. Now, number 4, Paul says, he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up. Oh, I love this picture. I always think of the marshmallow man. Too puffy and squishy. Anyways, puffed up with conceit. You squish him, what comes out? 
well, marshmallows, of course, um, and fall into the condemnation of the devil. An elder um, is a man who is mature in his faith. Um, this doesn't mean... Um, this doesn't mean that a man who is young in his years cannot be an elder. doesn't mean that. I've known a few, not many, okay, because I haven't known a lot of people, but I've known a few young men in their 20s who I know and have believed that have been given the gift of spiritual maturity that actually far outweighs men twice their age or three times their age. Met a few. Um, so either way, regardless of the biological age, I believe Timothy was a very young man when he was installed as a pastor. So regardless of biological age, an elder must be mature in his faith. The problem with this character trait is that we often equate or relate or connect um, um, spiritual maturity uh, with uh, something called charisma or, or, or personality uh, or, uh, or ability. Okay? Um, and while well, those things aren't bad, um, those are not the right measuring rods. At all. Better to have a boring man in the pulpit than a man who is unqualified and not mature. Um, the measuring rod for spiritual maturity, I'll be honest with you, I think it's what Joe Nelson preached last week. Um, a spiritually mature man exhibits a healthy fear of the Lord. Which then what? A healthy fear of the Lord leads to spiritual knowledge. Right? And spiritual knowledge leads to spiritual wisdom because wisdom is knowledge in action Therefore, what you see coming out of a man who actually has wisdom is that what plays out in his life is this unhindered freedom to joyfully love God obediently. So I think that's the picture. Um, the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit should be overwhelmingly present in a pastor's life, an elder's life. He should not be full of himself. When you get around a man who is an elder or a pastor, it should not be all about him and his wants and his desires and his frustrations and how he's upset about this and he's ticked because he ain't got that. Like, when you get around an elder, you'll know he's not full of himself, full of the fruit of Jesus. It's coming out of him. Now, we're not perfect, right? You're going to have moments. But overall, you should see a trajectory of a man who is not full of himself, but is actually full of of Jesus, full of the Spirit. He must not be a man who consistently runs off the cliff of foolishness because his desires are raging out of control. Like, when I think of that picture, what I see is SpongeBob SquarePants, right? When he's like taking too many steroids or something, I don't know, and like his muscles are popping and he's like roiding, raging all over the place. Okay, so it shouldn't just be like <coughs> running off Edge of the cliff, with his sin, his desires are out of control. An elder must be a man who is mature in his faith. Number five, last point, um, an elder must be a man with a respectable reputation. Verse seven, Paul says at the calling, to, re to review again, uh, you'll notice I'm repeating myself a lot here, right? Reviewing a lot because I want us, to, want us to land these points. Calling an elder number one is an honorable calling. Number two, therefore, a man must be a man of an elder must be a man of godly character. Number three, he must have a well-managed home. Number four, he must be mature in his faith. And then finally, number five, Paul says he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. So 
Uh, simply put, an elder uh, is a man with a respectable reputation. Now, this doesn't mean that everyone likes him. So get, make sure you got that. It doesn't mean everyone likes him. It's not just that he's a likable man. Boy, I just like him. He's so sweet. Not that. It's not that kind of uh, respectable reputation. <clears throat> uh, Jesus had enemies who killed him. Agreed? Okay. Uh, Paul had enemies who talked trash about him and ultimately killed him too. Agreed? Both of them qualified elders, qualified pastors. Uh, Timothy, pretty sure Timothy now most likely had some enemies that he had thrown out of the church for their heresy. Pretty sure he had some enemies that did not like him, right? It's not about being likable. This principle is not about, is really what it's about is, is not having anything stick to you that would bring reproach on or disrespect to the message of the gospel in the name of our Savior. So the bank lady... Okay, the bank lady, um, you know, the waitress, uh, gas station attendant, um, you know, this whole list. Teachers at the school that your kids go to. um, These people may disagree with me. Um, They might even hate me because I've taken a stand on biblical truth. But they must not, there must not be any... uh, um, a possibility that they could level a claim against me or any other elder um, in, in regards to the mismanagement of our lives, whether that be finances or relationships or any other. The church does not need men in leadership who constantly fall into disgrace or constantly fall into the devil's traps because their desires for power, prestige, money, and sex are out of control. The church, once again, is the bride of Christ, Jesus' wife, the flock of the chief shepherd, of the church, family is what it is. And what the church family needs is elders who are, who are men with respectable reputations. Now, uh, I said at the start that this might be a hard message for some of you to hear because you're like, I'm not called to be an elder. Um, I hope that you would have heard some things that would have applied to you just as a disciple. And we're gonna, I'm going to conclude here in a little bit. But before I conclude, we're going to do something a little bit special. It's going to cause us to run a little bit long. And I hope, my hope is that uh, this would help us as a church family put skin in the game on, uh, on what it means to have elders being developed in our church. So I'm going to invite uh, Joe and Eileen and uh, Chris and Steph up to the front. And uh, as they're coming, I'm going to let you know that these... these uh, Two couples, uh, the two men primarily have expressed a desire to become elders in our church. Um, um, we've, uh, we've walked together now for the last year or more in many different regards. And so uh, uh, I'm just going to have you guys stand like just right down here uh, in front. Um, and so uh, in many regards, uh, we spent a lot of time together. And part of the process for these men to pursue becoming elders, pastors, shepherds, overseers in our church, is that they have to be um, evaluated and examined, and they get to do lots of work to be prepared. Now, in, in, um, in the interesting thing is both these men are older than I and have actually served in roles in eldership, um, in some regards, longer than I in some places. So um, this is a really humbling position for me to be in. Um, but the first step in the process, one of the first steps, is that they, they have to write out their testimony and then their calling. Basically answers the question, 
Like, how did you start following Jesus? And why do you think you're called to be an elder here? And so uh, they're both, they both have agreed to come and to read those to us. Um, Chris's is two pages and Joe's is four. So you can tell who, yeah. So um, <laughs> what I like about Chris is he's short and summarizes really well. And Joe's a lot like me, wordy, wordy, wordy. So, um, so these guys are going to read through those. And then when they're done reading, um, we're, I'm going to have two different couples come and we're going to lay hands on them. We're going to pray for them as they begin the journey of being developed um, as elders. So, uh, so, Joe, I'm going to let you read first, and then, uh, then we'll pass it over to Chris after that, okay? Oh, hey, this mic is back here for you. You've got to use a mic. That's probably a good idea because I kind of have a cold. But okay. Here we go. It's a daunting task, I have to admit. Really interesting to me. I love what it makes me think about. Um, prior to becoming a Christian in the summer of 1972, Eileen and I had been married three years, and I was 26 years of age. Both of us had had, had some church background, but were not practicing members of either. Eileen was raised Catholic, and I was raised in the Christian Science Church. Our relationship with God at that point was almost non-existent. We had just had a child one time, and we began to think about just what our parenting responsibilities should be. I have to say that I was much more ignorant of those responsibilities than I mean, that she was always desiring motherhood and was doing a great job in caring for our new child. It was at that time, however, that Eileen was in discussions with her older sister, who was very active and involved in the Jehovah's Witness religion, one of the teachings of that cult was that the world was going to end soon, and her sister told her that our baby probably would never reach adulthood since all was coming to an end and only those chosen for the kingdom would have any chance at all. As we discussed what she was learning, uh, that's the easy way to say it, um, I was not at all interested and was wanting Eileen to not get involved in that group. She didn't care for the doctrine either and was just thinking about our future as a family. We had a few interesting discussions as a result as this was causing some real strife. At the same time, one of Eileen's dear friends in a nearby town who is a born-again believer was praying for us that we would find the Lord. So we were hearing from both sides and were quite confused that our desire to know him began, as our desire began to, to know him began to grow. We had both picked up the book titled Late Great Planet Earth, which is an old book now, and we're reading that, and the message in that book at first caused some fear again as he taught about the end times and just what those were going to look like. Again, also our one-year-old daughter. As a result, the message of the book won the day, and we both gave our lives to God, still not knowing really just what that meant for both of us, for both the present and for the future. The following Sunday, we decided to visit an even evangelical free church that her group, that her good friend attended, and the rest is history. We became close friends quickly with the pastor, who made it clear that very first day, just what one needs to do to deal with the sin question and the need for a Savior, who of course is Jesus. He began to disciple us, and our growth as new believers was underway, obviously having never or having been raised and intensely influenced by the 60s generation. 
and that philosophy, our lives dramatically changed, as did our total worldview. The walk these last 47 years has been very interesting, to say the least, but we have rejoiced every day since to be part of his family and kingdom. Obviously, knowing God requires to know just what he has said, not only in the past, but today. That, of course, comes from the Bible. Daily reading and prayer are essential. As adults from the beginning, we were soaking in his word like a sponge. Moving right along. <laughs> With <laughs> Regular church attendance, Bible reading, attending group Bible studies played and still plays an important part of that new life. There are multiple times when the Lord spoke to either Eileen or myself as needed to make important decisions about career, how to raise our children, and even where to live. Discipline is always difficult, so there are seasons when that growth seemed to grow rapidly and other seasons when it seemed like it slowed down. We have learned from many experiences, some painful and others joyous, about the goodness of God and the holiness of God and how to remain faithful during either of those seasons. Since my retirement from the business world just one year ago, our life has somewhat changed. Having been around tons of people in my business relationships over these 40 years, there were many opportunities to share, help, or encourage a great many of my coworkers and the hundreds of those I dealt with outside the office. We have served on the homeschool board now for some years and are involved with the community that, community that way as well. In my retirement, however, there has not been as many new opportunities to develop relationships to make contact with unchurched people. And that as we have now become very involved at the well, we are expecting many things to be added to our itinerary as the months go by and as we are involved in any shepherding experiences. I trust that we, again, have the ability to deal with those that are either unchurched or unsaved. We are always ready to share with anyone in need, either as we go about our daily dealings with the community or as we meet and friend others we come in contact with. The last time that I actually was able to share the gospel one-on-one -on -one with another, other than with our own children as they continue to grow, was with my friend that we had been buying beef from for a number of years. This was a couple years ago when we were talking on the phone. He, I called him from work, and we did a lot of work together uh, talking about what kind of beef I wanted to order, all that kind of stuff. But he lived in a town southeast Nebraska, and the last time we spoke was just days before he suddenly passed away from a heart problem, and he had mentioned to me that he had understood what I was saying and that he was a believer and knew Jesus. He had no idea that he was going to die a few days later. So I have always been glad to have had that conversation with him. I also conducted his funeral, and that was a very meaningful thing to do. But as Eileen was reading this, she reminded me that just, just the other day, we shared the gospel with a young stoned, and literally stoned, hitchhiker just, a, well, right now it's a couple weeks ago, and we gave him a ride. I probably share the gospel more than I know because I sometimes overlook the everyday informal encounters that God throws in our path. Temptation, as real as it is, is always handled by prayer, repeating his word and forgiveness. Eileen and I have always, since becoming Christians, been keenly aware of just how to use the money that God supplies. We had seasons of having to get by on very little, but always wanted to still give out of that supply. Fortunately, Eileen has that gift of giving and has taught me through the years just how important and blessed it is to give. And as the years passed, 
and as, and as our finances improved greatly, we still have the same desire. Giving to church, other ministries, family, and friends has always been a major part of learning to handle money. I know that the love of money is a real issue, but we attempt to stay away from that temptation. I have and always will be the husband of one wife, and I'm very comfortable in that role. As I was away from the home quite often with business, we both had to remain committed to supporting each other during those times. I always avoided, like the plague, any situation in my traveling that could lead to any compromising situation. We have both had that same philosophy in church relationships as well. I will admit that I am fairly naive about women and any possible advances they might be making, such that at times Eileen has had to pull me aside and warn me to be careful. <laughs> Couple times, yeah. I was always surprised that that was even a factor, but her counsel was wise in retrospect. We will have been married 50 years in a few months. We will have been married 50 years in a few months, and, have, and I am blessed to have the partner I have to finish out our days on earth. The desire for power, fortunately, has not really posed myriads of problems for me. In marriage, of course, I had to learn just how to share that part of our relationship as well. Even after 50 years, I'm still learning that. One of my gifts is encouragement, and I have been able to come alongside pastors, business associates, and friends to encourage them in their life. I had those who answered to me in my work, and I always strove to be sure that, I, that they never felt like I was lording it over them as we made important decisions together. And when I failed to do that in my marriage and family, we would talk through it, and still do, and I many times had to admit that I was wrong. Spiritual growth never stops, especially in a family, and has taught me to be able to admit wrong easier than in my earlier years. Pride comes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall, Psalm 16, 18. This has always meant a great deal to me. Most of what I learned about this was long ago in our early walk with the Lord. I, I like to feel good about what I am doing or what I, am my, what I may be accomplishing, but there is always this reminder to me when I begin to think more highly of myself than I ought to think. I have seen a great many fall on the sword of haughtiness, most of them being those we have known in various churches. I never want that label to be put on me. The calling to lead the church section, I wrote, I have my BA degree from the University of Washington and my Master's of Divinity from Western Baptist Seminary in Portland, Oregon. I have taught classes over the last 45 years in leadership, discipleship, prophecy, as well as many books of the Bible, all which require articles, books, and courses. But the main source for this preparation has come from his word, obviously. I like to read articles about many of the past great preachers in American history, that period of history is rather exciting and interesting to me. Last page. Aren't you glad? <laughs> uh, do we need a break? <laughs> there were so many theological books required in seminary that it's hard to remember them all. My predominantly Baptist background has been in Calvinistic teaching with an interest as well in end-time studies, eschatology, even including good novels about end-times. Also, Eileen and I spend quite a bit of time discussing the condition of the world and more, more particularly the state of our own country. Since our worldview changed so drastically after we were saved, this has always been a fascinating topic of conversation and study in our house. And it is good to realistic, realistically see the world we live in in order to be better 
able to discuss how believers should respond and react no matter what our age. I believe I am called to be an elder, keeping in mind that the basis for this is that an elder is a shepherd to help guide, lead, and protect the flock. The Lord pointed me to this kind of leadership quite early in my journey as a believer, and my gifts and abilities seem to underscore that. I love to teach. I love my wife and family and others. I've affirmed that calling to me in the many years following. It is definitely something to which I aspire, as the Apostle Paul said, pastoring is a very meaningful task as well as a difficult and challenging work, so I do not take lightly the time, effort, and prayer required to do it well. As I have stated before, teaching and encouragement are gifts and abilities that God has allowed me to use. I have spent many years teaching adult classes, have led Bible study home groups, HBSs as I call them lovingly, <laughs> and have been able to establish relationships with many people. I love to be around people, which is probably just the way I'm wired, not any special gift. I work for Harmony in any situation, be it at home, work, or church. I will always strive to see people get along. Eileen has always been, from the beginning, very supporting of this calling. I see her use her gifts all the time as well, as she also has a love and a gift for teaching, giving, and hospitality. She's very protective of me and our family, so any reservations would come from issues and trials that we have had in other churches where power and jealousy attempted to cause division and pain in the body. She desires peace, and I must always put her first in any ministry to which I feel called. Since our journey began at the well, we have carefully studied and observed to ascertain just where this church body wants to go and how we might fit into that program, and we like what we have seen in our first year. Can you tell procrastination is one of my spiritual gifts? All right. Well, you'll see there, parallel, there's a lot of questions that culminate these essays. I'm a verbal processor. Joe is a writer. <laughs> so I'll be much shorter. But anyway, um, I'm happy to also discuss any of these if uh, I don't elaborate enough in my time here. So anyway, personal testimony and spiritual life. I grew up in a church-going family. While I'm grateful that my parents put me in the r right environment to grow spiritually, my father is not a believer and therefore didn't place much value in the Bible. For as long as I can remember, I've had a yearning to know the Lord, and it has been a slow and rich process. It was during my high school years that my youth leaders introduced me to the fact that our God is a living God and desires a relationship with each of his children. The, that was the catalyst that truly began my walk with Jesus. Through my relationship with the Lord and the study of his word, my life and worldview have changed and completely restructured all aspects of my life. Prayer is something that comes easy for me and something that I do both during a scheduled time as well as impromptu throughout the day. I'm continually thankful that we serve a living God who is accessible to us at any time. I'm continually fed through good preaching from my pastors and thoroughly enjoy, learn, and treasure authentic discussion in our gospel community groups. 
While I've spent a good portion of my life in a school setting, I am not an avid reader, so getting into the Word of God uh, is definitely a discipline for me. I do read the Bible each day, but it, my sessions are typically short. One of the many things I love about my job is that I get to meet a variety of different people from all over the country. Frequently, the Lord opens the door for me to pray with people, which often leads to continued friendship and good discussion. I've always, I always want to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit, but when he opens the door, I roll with it and try to share God's truths and love, those, uh, and love with those around me. Recently, I had the opportunity to share the gospel message with a gentleman that I've been developing a relationship over the past few years. His marriage had been on the rocks, so we had co connected several times discussing what role God has outlined for us as husbands. While this gentleman is not yet proclaimed committing his trust to Christ, he is moving closer to the Lord via weekly Bible studies and meetings and weekly engaging in a local church. Nearly every night I ask the Lord to help me to love my wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Without a doubt, this prayer is continually answered as my love and desire and admiration for the gift that my wife is to me becomes more and more evident. Furthermore, I believe that this prayer has protected my heart and mind from wandering toward other sinful thoughts. By God's grace, our financial needs have always been met. I am fortunate not to have to worry about how to pay the next month's bills. However, with being a car guy, I am often tempted more, which is certainly a fleshly temptation that I have to keep in check. Probably my greatest area of temptation, or excuse me, probably my greatest temptation with pride uh, came through my old job of some 15 years ago. Just to give a little background, I was a, a band director, and I had a long history of uh, competing in very competitive uh, musical groups. And so when I came into teaching, yes, I love kids, uh, but I also loved what I did to the point that it became an, probably an idol for me. Not probably, it was an idol. And so I pushed those kids hard, and I'd work hard, and I, I believe I never demeaned them, and I loved them. But at the end of the day, it was really probably about me and my successes with those kids in the programs that I led. Fortunately, I was able to leave that career to pursue another one, since which has been freeing to my soul. I am confident that pride currently pops up in many other more subtle portions of my life that God continues to reveal to me. For example, putting my desires above my wife, my family, etc. I'm calling to lead a church. I have participated in small group Bible studies for over 17 years. Over those seven, of those 17 years, I served as a leader and facilitator for 12 years. I have participated in numerous Bible studies that focused on marriage, leadership, spiritual gifts, peacemaking, and many others. I have a master's degree in music education and a great deal of experience in teaching people of all different ages. I believe that God has built me with a skill set that is more fitting uh, for that of an elder than a deacon. Seeking the position of elder was never on my radar. However, my brothers in Christ nominated me as a candidate, and I accepted. I found the position of elder to fit well with my personality and giftings. By occupation, I was a public school teacher for eight years in the area of mu instrumental music, and I taught ensembles as large as 130 students at one time. Since, I have also run my own business for the past 16 years, managing employees, making decisions that are required by any business owner. And lastly, I have, the have had the privilege to serve on the elder board at the Hastings Evangelical Free Church for five years, 
For the three of those five years, I was chairman and found great joy in serving in this capacity. In those experiences as an elder, I was presented with the opportunity to lead a variety of people in numerous ways. I feel that God has given me an ability to guide people with clarity, direction, and purpose. While I don't seek conflict, I don't hesitate to address it. I believe strongly in working through conflict in order to achieve resolution to God's glory. As mentioned above, I had the opportunity to serve as an elder at the Hastings D. Free Church for five years. Prior to taking on that role, my wife indicated her willingness to wholeheartedly support me in this calling. Looking back at that season of serving, there wasn't a single time that my wife flinched when I was needed to fulfill the, my role in this capacity. Along with me, my wife believes that my role as an elder is a calling. All right, so what, uh, what we've done is we've asked a couple of couples to come forward and pray for these guys, and I want to invite the rest of the church family into that as much as we can, too. There's not enough room up front here for all of us in the room, um, but I know that uh, uh, Micah and Harley Riley, they're going to come and pray for the Shades, and then uh, Eric and Morgan are going to come pray for the Nelsons. I've got that right, right? I didn't get that backwards, did I? Okay. And, uh, and so they're, gonna, they're just going to lay hands on them and pray for them. And, and if there's any of you others that would like to come up and just lay hands on them as well, um, we'd like to invite you just to get up now and come on forward and, and uh, be happy to have you laying hands on them too if you don't want to. I don't see anybody moving. So, okay, stay where you're at then. That's fine. It's all right. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I don't remember who I'd asked to pray first. You guys remember? These guys. Okay, so everybody bow your heads. At least put your hands out if you're not going to get out of your seats. All right, good. Thank you. All right. Real, real quick, James. Um, who is wise and understanding among you, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness, in the meekness of wisdom. Then it goes on to say, but the wisdom from above is pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Um, Lord, I just uh, I thank you. I want to lift up Joel and Nelson to you. Um, and thank you for the calling. Uh, that you placed on him. Thank you for uh, his, for 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 him listening and uh, being obedient right to that call. Um, thank you for how you wired him, uh, Lord. The, the 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 just yeah. thank you for for yeah, how how you wired him to to fulfill that call. Um, and I just pray that, that as he steps into this, as he starts this journey, right, this chapter, this season in his life, that you would uh, yeah, continue to build him up into creating him to be and uh, Father, guard him, keep his path straight, please watch over him and protect him as he pursues you, right?
such a blessing to have them here. And I think I can speak for all of us and say we can wholeheartedly feel the love and wisdom that they bring to this family. Um, I want to specifically lift Eileen up to your father. I just pray that she knows that not only to us as a church family, to her husband and her family, but to most importantly you, how valuable and priceless that she is. I just pray that she knows that as important as Joe's role as an elder is that her role in supporting him and coming alongside of him in that is just as important. Um, and I thank you for her heart and her spirit in that, God, and her willingness to do so. Um, I just pray that um, as a couple, as individuals that they know how loved and cherished they are and what a blessing they are to this church. Um, and I just want to read out of Ephesians 4. It says, Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle, be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. I pray that through beginning this journey as an elder here as well, um, and a wife of an elder here as well, um, that they do just as you ask in that passage. We pray <clears throat> that in each other's faults and shortcomings, that they just draw closer together. Um, and I thank them in advance, um, and Eileen especially, that for the time that this eldership process will take away from her and her family. I am thankful for that, and yes, I just pray all that scripture and all these words over them. I just pray that they feel your love and your peace. Yes, we love you, and we thank you so, so much for this family. Lord, I am here, I'm just so thankful that you not only brought them to our church, uh, but they are feeling called to serve in big ways here. Um, to lead by example um, for all of us. Um, we're a growing church, we're a young church. Um, so I just thank them for the yeah the example that they set um, in their in their family lives, in their relationships, um, in their parenting. However many roles that they fill, um, I thank you so much for Steph. Thank you um, for how you made steps. 
talking to you for um, just how she speaks into Chris's life and also how she receives um, just love and you know maybe constructive criticism or just her ability to be flexible but um, always working towards pleasing you and serving you. Um, I pray that she knows that she has a role in this too. feel to say that it's it can be natural for us to feel and be thankful for um, a man like Chris and a couple um, yeah like Chris and Seth and Joe and I mean. um, but it's not natural for us to express things Father and um, I just pray that this would just be a time that um, that you just touch them um, and that we would be able to physically express how thankful we are for um, leaders like these couples and um, yeah, for Chris, God, I know he's just such a, a noble and um, peaceful and um, just, yeah, he's a natural leader. And God, I thank you for the man that he is. Um, and I thank you that he is full of love um, for Steph, for his family, um, for this church. And Father, I pray that you um, would lead him um, as he is, yeah, now finally a member. Um, yeah, now, leading us as a church, Father, and um, yeah, I pray that you would give grace over this couple, um, that you would give them patience, um, yeah, Father, and that they would be able to see the fruit that they would, um, and that they sow, and that, um, yeah, Father, that it would just be church-wide, and uh, yeah, I just pray for new conversation, new, um, uh, just ways to seek people out, um, they wouldn't ever feel stuck in a rut, Father, spiritually in their own lives. Um, that there may be a feeling that the church may feel stuck. Father, I pray that there would just be advancement um, in your kingdom, in this place, um, yeah, in their lives. And yeah, God, I just pray again that grace um, of leadership for Chris, um, that as he leads his family, um, that there would just be such a I don't know, just such a, a great insight um, for Chris 
God, that there would just be a newness and relationship with you that would just um, really just help the rest of his family, help us. And yeah, just as Harley said, as they, however long ago became one, um, yeah, that they would just lead us in that, um, in being one, and loving one another and leading one another. Yeah, thank you for this new step. Joe and I lead, um, yeah, just for these couples that said yes to a challenge um, and yes to love. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.